Welcome to this Burlington Audio Podcast. We hope you will be encouraged and inspired in your faith as you listen to this message. We'd love to hear what you think. Please be in touch with us through the website. More information and many more podcasts are all at burlingtonbaptist.org.uk. Thanks for listening. Great job, everybody. Week six? No, week seven. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Who do you think that you really are? It's Palm Sunday, and uh, Palm Sunday we remember when Jesus uh, went into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, and the crowds cried out, Hosanna, which means... It's an it's a, it's a endearment of praise, absolutely right. Any advance on praise has the connotation of uh, saving. Here is the one that is coming to save us, to rescue us. And as we think about our identity this morning on this Palm Sunday, we're going to think about God who is the rescuer. And everything that's true about ourselves in terms of who we are begins with understanding truth about God. If God is our rescuer, then we must be rescued. And so they cried out that the rescuer, the liberator, the the Messiah was coming, the one who would save. They'd call him Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. And Jesus said, "If, if the people don't cry out, what will happen? The stones will cry out themselves that Jesus is the one who comes to rescue and to save. Ever since we rebelled against God in the garden called Eden, that place of intimacy with God, that place of relationship with Him, which helped us above all else to understand who we were. We understood who we were because of the relationship that we had with God. And when that went wrong, belly up, our identity got trampled underfoot with it. When we lost that connection with God, we lost that connection of being able to understand who we truly are. It's like our true selves, our real identity, became lost under a pile of rubble. And we see that, I think, all of the time. Somehow, somewhere deep inside us, we know we were made to be beautiful. And yet, so often, We don't sense that we are the beauty for which we were made. Maybe on occasions we get a glimpse that we were destined for something truly great, but feel most of the time that that greatness eludes us. Maybe we see in faint outline that we were made for something so much bigger than we are, and yet find ourselves day by day simply struggling to breathe, to hold our head up above water. And so our identity, our sense of self, has got lost under a pile of rubble. When the world fell, when we rebelled, when everything collapsed in on itself, who I was truly made to be, who you were truly made to be, got lost with it. And like an emergency response team in an earthquake... 
to get there, to clear the rubble away so that the life that is still breathing underneath the, the rubble can live again. So Jesus, the rescuer, has come to clear the rubble away from our lives that our true selves might rise, might live again. And I think there is all kinds of types of rubble under which underneath which our lives have become buried. All kinds of rubble that obscure the truth about who we are and who we were made to be. Lots, rightly so, was made of the firefighters after the 9-11 tragedy. How they rushed to the scene, how they gave of themselves with a level of commitment and passion. They held some of them literally nothing back and lost their lives in the act of saving others from the rubble. So Jesus has come with the same passion, the same determination. He said, I've got to set my face towards Jerusalem because that's the place where it will happen. And he goes on Palm Sunday into Jerusalem knowing that at the end of that week, his life would also come to an end. With the commitment of a rescuer, he's come to clear the rubble away. And so I'd like us to think this morning, not so much about the walk into Jerusalem, but I'd like us to think about what was on Jesus' mind as he went into Jerusalem. Namely, the events just five days ahead on Good Friday. So you've all been in a situation where what's going on around you is eclipsed by what's going on inside your head, especially if it's a worry or an anxiety, am I right? So for all the noise of Hosanna, for all the shouts of acclamation, for all the acts of devotion, inside Jesus' head, as it had been so often, was the reality of where he was heading. And as we think about what happened to Jesus at the end of the week, we see all types of rubble that he was seeking to clear away from our lives, that our true selves might rise up. The soldiers on that fateful Thursday evening, Friday morning, had two tasks. It says that their task was to scourge Jesus, which was a a whip with kind of metal and rubber that would literally take the skin off a prisoner's back. A maximum of 39 lashes were allowed, barely were 39 ever needed to render the victim utterly powerless. Then after scourging the victim, they were given the task of placing the crossbeam on the prisoner's back and to take them to the place of execution. Two tasks that they would have done horrifyingly with a sense of regularity. Crucifixion wasn't wildly unusual the, the agony of it, the giving of the punishment by the Roman soldiers, all too familiar. Maybe that's why, when they came to Jesus, they wanted, if nothing else, to relieve themselves of the boredom. To do something a little different. To go out of their way for a moment, perhaps simply to create a bit of fun. So we read about there being an interlude between the scourging and the crucifixion. And they had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked, Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they'd mocked him, 
They took off the robe, put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. There's some strange detail in all of that, isn't there? That out of the familiar routine of crucifixion, they took Jesus aside to mock him in this kind of way. And there are a few things in this that I'd like us to draw out as we think about what Jesus was doing as he was heading towards the cross. It says they spat on him. They gathered some gob in their mouth and they propelled it towards Jesus. It can't hurt, can it? Spitting. Spitting doesn't hurt or maim the body, but it does hurt and maim the soul. If someone has spat on you, you will know what we mean. There's something degrading about being spat upon. It humiliates, it embarrasses, it robs of dignity. What were these soldiers doing? What were they thinking? Were they not elevating themselves at the expense of another? Were they not making themselves feel big as they made Christ feel small? Have we ever metaphorically, perhaps, spat on someone? Maybe we've never spat, but we've gossiped or slandered or raised our hand in anger or rolled our eyes in arrogance. Have we, in a sense, made ourselves big in order to make someone else, sorry, made someone else feel small in order to help ourselves feel big? Have we ever blasted our headlights in someone's rearview mirror or gesticulated with a fist or something worse? Have we made someone feel bad so that we might feel good? As victim or perpetrator in those moments, it's shame that is at work. They spat on him. They filled the moment with a sense of shame. The ugliness in a person's life, in their lives, comes to the fore and lands on Jesus' face. The rottenness, the arrogance, the self-centeredness, the self-seeking, the self serving beast that lies within us all is somehow encapsulated in that moment when they gathered phlegm in their mouth and propelled it at Jesus's face. But notice what happens. In a sense, you might say nothing happens and you would be right. Jesus, a defenseless victim, no moment to wipe his face or to wash his hair. He carries that spit with him on his body. He carries your shame and mine on himself as he makes that journey towards the cross. Jesus has come to dig us out of the rubble of our shame. Shame that just like phlegm does, it sticks to you. It gets everywhere. You can't easily wipe it away. And so as shame in the form of that spit stuck to Jesus, he took it with him to the cross and it clings to him there. Everything that's beast-like in you and in me, all the shame that you've ever per- perpetuated, perpetrated, all the shame that you've ever received as a victim, all gathered somehow on Jesus as he makes his way to the cross. In the fable, The beauty kisses the beast. In the Bible, the beauty becomes the beast. So that the beast in all of us might become beautiful again. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But that's not all that happened in that interlude. They spat on him. 
And then twisted together, it says, a crown of thorns. And set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews. An unnamed soldier. A nobody. Just for a laugh. Again, to make himself feel big, to momentarily distract him from the duties of the day. Who knows? But he took some branches, mature enough to bear thorns, yet nimble enough to bend, and he wove them into a crown, a crown of mockery, and placed it on Jesus' head. No doubt, just like you and I are clueless sometimes to the things that we do, no doubt this pagan soldier had absolutely no idea the significance of what he was doing as he wove those branches together and placed them on Jesus' brow. Did he know that the scriptures talk about thorns as the fruit of sin? I doubt it. Did he remember that in Genesis, after Adam and Eve fell from their relationship with God and the whole world fell with them, God said that there would be thorns and thistles in the fields that they would now need to labor in. That there would be brambles on the earth as a product, a consequence of sin in our hearts. Did he know all the other Old Testament references about thorns and uh, spikes and prickles being the fruit, the consequence of sin? And aptly so, because sin is spiny and prickly and cutting like thorns. And so they gathered this crown and they placed it on his head for he himself would bear the thorny, prickly weight of your sin and mine. The crown of thorns because we needed to be dug out of the rubble of our sin. Fear, the fruit of sin. Failure, The fruit of sin. Disappointments, the fruit of sin. Alienation, rejection, anxiety, guilt. And so the list could go on. All those prickly, thorny things that barb on our lives because of sin. All placed on Jesus' head. And then, of course, the ultimate reality. The ultimate fruit of sin. The ultimate destination of a sinful life is to be separated from God. Not just now, but for Ever, to always be outside his presence. And as Jesus was wearing that crown of thorns that as a symbol of, of being the one that would carry our sin, he went to the cross and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? It wasn't just that Jesus felt left. He was left totally abandoned by God because in that moment he was carrying the weight, the consequence, the fruit of all of our sin. And for the first time ever and for the only time, Father, Son and Holy Spirit were ripped apart to dig us out of the rubble of our sin. And there are sins that you have done that have caused you to lose your identity. And there are sins that others have done to you that have caused you to lose your true identity. And as Jesus died on the cross, he wants to clear away the rubble of sin in our lives. That we might rise out of the ashes to be the people that he's always intended us to be. And so he goes to the cross with this wretched crown of thorns on his head. He took the sin that was ours. So wonderfully, Paul writes some years later to his younger mate, Timothy. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. You get a crown of 
righteousness because he got a crown of thorns. That's not fair. Life's rarely fair. But the gift of God to us is that reality. Now there is in store for me, Paul writes, the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me but also to all who, what? Who long for his appearing. It's amazing, isn't it, how some of this incidental detail about the spit and the thorn speak such truth into what was going on. We haven't got time to mention it really, but I will sneak it in. The scarlet robe that they placed on him. Do you remember way back in the Old Testament when um, they were going to take the city of uh, Jericho and there was one lady in Jericho that helped them? Remember that story? She was a prostitute and uh, she would hang outside her window a scarlet thread in order that those that took the city would spare her life. And so the scarlet thread, the sign of her sin, became the symbol of her salvation. That's good preaching right there. The sign of her sin became the symbol of her salvation. Who would have thought that thousands of years later on a cross, the Son of God would become a sign of our sin and also a symbol of our salvation. It's like the Bible was written by the same person all the way through. Someone mentioned that once. said, you know, it's like it all fits together. Never. So they wrapped, what was the point of all that? Oh, scarlet thread. That's it. Nearly lost it. Scarlet thread. They wrapped a what color robe around him? Covered in the sign of our sin. The symbol of our salvation. Amazing. Dug out of the rubble of our shame, of our sin. Oh, we're going to fast track on a bit further. Jesus has been crucified. And then they put a notice on the cross. You might remember this as part of the story. Pilate, he was the man in charge, had a notice prepared and fastened it to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin and Greek. The sign troubles the Jews, won't be changed by Pilate, but the words are written in three languages and the sign is mentioned in all four Gospels. So it struck somebody of being of significance. Written in three languages. Well, there may be many reasons, but this for me is the depth of what happened on the cross. Everyone who walked past the interchange, and that's where Jesus was crucified, that there is a green hill far away, makes it sound quite different in terms of atmosphere. It was a bustly interchange where Jesus was crucified. Maximum humiliation. It was the M25 of the day, only everyone was going slow enough to see what was going on, which actually is a bit like the M25. And there at that interchange, where people travelling from city to city, people travelling from nation to nation, would pass by this main thoroughfare, this major interchange, and the notice is written in all three languages of the known world. So everybody who went past could read it in their own language. Hebrew, the language of Israel, the language of religion. Latin, the language of Rome, of government and law. Greece, the language of culture, and so on. And why is that important? Because what Jesus was doing in that moment was not just for some, but for all. 
It was not just for one type, but for every type. Not just for one nation, but for all nations. Not one language and culture, but every language and every culture. And so the sign is there. Everybody can see it. The cross is for you. The cross digs us out of the rubble of our low self-esteem. Because as we hear about what Jesus has done for us, it's so easy to say, well, God does it because he loves somebody else. And God loves someone else more than he loves me. And God would have died for them, but I'm not sure that he would have died for me. And we internalize all this stuff that comes out of a messed up identity because we no longer believe in ourselves in the way that we were created to. We no longer believe we carry the value and worth that we were created to carry. And so it's a reminder in three languages that the Easter story is for you because it's for everyone. He's the king of all peoples. Of all cultures. He was dying for all religions and all faiths. He's a king and his death was a message to all. Christ died once and for all. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive by the Spirit. So you cannot say, you cannot say, because you might feel pretty rubbish about yourself, and that's because our identities got messed up, you cannot say, do you know what? I'm too bad. Or I'm too heathen. Or I'm part of the wrong gang. Or I was born in the wrong place. Or I speak with the wrong accent. Or I wear the wrong clothes. Or I like the wrong things. Whatever. You cannot say it's not for me. The notice was in every language. Because what was happening was for all people. The dying saviour. An event that gloriously transcends every barrier across the ancient world. And gloriously transcends every barrier in our lives that we would put up. All the resistance to God's love that we would put forward. The cross wipes it all away. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Have you ever not been allowed in somewhere because you're wearing the wrong clothes? It's happened to me on occasion. I found myself inappropriately dressed. Have you stood at the entrance of a restaurant? You look in, you can see the table that's reserved for you, but you cannot go inside because you haven't a jacket, a tie, a long enough dress, whatever it is. When I was training for the marathon, we met up with some guys that we were going to run with, with Samaritan's Bus in London, and I needed somewhere to change after I'd run. So we'd done about 10 miles. I was looking pristine and fresh. And and I thought, I know, I'll go into the Ritz to change Surely they've got toilets in the Ritz, right, where you could get changed. I got past the resolving door. thought, I'm going to own the place, you know. I got about three steps in before I was almost physically manhandled out. Not because I wasn't important. Surely they knew who I was. But because I wasn't wearing the right clothes. Apparently I was inappropriate dress for the lobby. (laughs) So I I got changed in the toilets in the Holiday Inn Express. They weren't half as bothered, to be honest. (laughs) There's a table that's been laid, a banquet that's set, but because of the way we think about our identity, because of the way that we feel that we're clothed, we're not confident that we're dressed right to get in. You with me? And with good reason, because we're not. And one of the types of rubble that our identity is lost under is that sense of we can't go in, we have to stay on the outside. That there's something about me that means I can't join in with everybody else. I'm not allowed in the lobby of the Ritz because there's something about me that's not quite right. I'm not allowed into God's presence like other people because there's something in me that's not quite right. I'm not 
clothed properly. I stick out like a sore thumb. And we've all been in environments when we thought about that, when we feel like that. Sometimes when you're getting ready in the morning, you're wanting to know what everyone else is going to wear. Come on, you do. Some of you want to know. Some of you will text your friend, what are you going to wear? Because you don't want to stick out like a sore thumb. We let you into a secret. Nobody cares what you wear. They don't. But we feel it inside. And we want to know that we're clothed right to go into the place that God has for us. But our self-esteem, our self-esteem so easily gets in the way. And that leads us to believe that we need to stay on the outside. What Jesus did on the cross is to dig us out of the rubble of our seclusion. Our belief that we, need to, we can't quite fully join in with everyone. There's something about me that means I need to stay on the edge. I need to stay on the outside. I'm not quite right in some way. But notice what happens at the cross. Jesus, during his life, wore a seamless robe. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? A robe woven from top to bottom that had no seam. Uh, I don't understand how that works, by the way. But has no seam. A seamless robe. It must have been his finest possession. Maybe his only possession. Quite possibly given to him by his mother when he left home. That certainly would have been Jewish tradition. How appropriate then a seamless robe for Jesus. His character was seamless, coordinated, unified. He was was like his robe of uninterrupted perfection. But when he died, he was stripped of his seamless robe. The indignity of nakedness, the indignity of failure, the indignity of sin. Most people were crucified completely naked. I have no idea about Jesus. In our churches, we go for modesty, so we don't usually present it like that. But it's hard to imagine the degrading humiliation of what was going on. And as he died there, stripped of his seamless robe, some soldiers threw some dice and cast some lots. And the soldiers crucified Jesus. They took his clothes Dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. A soldier left the place of crucifixion with a seamless garment. He neither earned nor deserved. You with me? You can leave the place of crucifixion with a garment that you neither earned nor could ever deserve. A garment of Christ's seamless perfection. A garment of his righteousness alone. In fact, Paul would write about it. He says, all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself. With Christ. It wasn't enough for him to prepare a feast, a banquet of music and celebration. It wasn't enough for him to reserve you a seat at the table. He did much more. He offers you the robes you need to go to the place to which you've been invited. For so often, we've believed lies about ourselves. Our identity has been shaped by, I'm not quite whatever is enough to really belong here. 
and we keep ourselves at a distance, maybe physically, maybe emotionally. We sometimes do it with God, keep ourselves at a distance from God because we're not, not quite sure. He gives us this seamless robe. So you even have the clothes to wear. You can get up in the morning and you don't need to text anyone asking, what are you going to wear today? Because we've been given this amazing gift of a robe to wear. And then finally, as this great drama unfolds, six hours, one Friday, that changed the world forever. There are two extras in the scene. You ever played an extra in a film? Ever been the crowd of just somebody else? No? Yes? Where's the yes? Wait, what, what was that? Can you say? <laughs> okay. Just in the background. In the scene this day, almost in the background, because we're focused on the cross in the middle, there are two other crosses. And most of the time, we only have one cross. One cross around our necks, one cross in, in a bit of graphic, one cross that comes down to remind us of the cross on which Jesus died. But there wasn't just one cross that day. Three crosses that day. One of the criminals hung there, hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. And the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, remember me, when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Why two crosses? Why one on each side? Two crosses because there's one choice. Two crosses because there's one choice. Two criminals that have so much in common, convicted by the same system, condemned to the same death, surrounded by the same crowds, equally close to the same Jesus, but one changed. Whilst we rejoice in the thief who repented, let's not forget the one who didn't. The one whose identity remained obscured by sin and shame and guilt and low self-esteem. The one who felt excluded, felt his life had been pushed into seclusion because of the way that he lived. I'm just getting what I deserve. This is my fate. That There's nothing different from me. This is my true self, he says as he hangs there on the cross. This is the true me. And all of heaven wants to cry out and go, no, no. And the one on the other side realized that even in this final moment, the rubble can be cleared away so that our true identity can come forth again. Today, you'll be with me. You'll be mine in paradise today. Both, of course, had made some pretty rubbish choices, I would imagine. Chosen the wrong crowd, the wrong morals, the wrong behavior. Yet one said, yet one said, remember me. And the other simply said, no, this is who I am. This is who I am. And there are times I think in our lives when all of us, just like that thief on the cross, go, do you know what? This is who I am. Can't teach an old dog new tricks. I've always thought like this about myself. I've always felt this way. This is who I am. And all of heaven says, no, no, no. See the one next to you. See him on that cross and know that every single stone, every bit of rubble that has crushed and marred and broken your true identity is pushed away in the name of Jesus. That under the rubble of it all, our true selves can rise again. Because the Son of God became a Son of Man, that the sons of men might be what they were always, and that's sons of God. That's another good bit of preaching right there. Two crosses, two men. One choice. 
As we enter into this Easter season, you have a choice. As we think about this series, who do you think you are? You have a choice. You have a choice. So much of our identity is lost and crushed and marred and disfigured. But you have a choice. A choice that says, no, I will not let my identity be shaped by my shame, by my sin, by my sense of self-worth, by my sense of, being, uh, a sense of seclusion, being on the outside. I, I won't let that happen anymore. Because there is a Son of God who has unequivocally said, I love you, you are mine. Who do you think you are? Well, you're someone worth dying for. That's who you are. And all of heaven, through all eternity, because the cross towers over it all, through all eternity, all of heaven has cried, you are worth dying for. How it grieves God's heart when we say, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. I'm not sure he loves me that much. And all of heaven cries out, you're worth it. I love you. Let your true self rise again. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. But in the awfulness of the cross, a sign of our sin is a symbol of our salvation. Scarlet cord, the scarlet robe, crown of thorns, spit on your face. The notices in three languages, undeniably, the cross was for me, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so you are my rescuer, you're my hope, and you're my salvation. And so I lift my head, I lift my life from the rubble that has crushed and marred and disfigured who I am. And I rise to live again, that as a son of man, I would become afresh the son of God.